I'm Tass Mellis of The Starters. This is Ben Golver with the Open Floor Podcast. Hi, I'm Kristen Ludlow from NBA Inside Stuff. I'm OG Ananobi of the Toronto Raptors. Hey, I'm Elena Donon, and welcome to the Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Double Clutch Podcast. Today, we're talking about UK hoops, uh, a subject I'm passionate about. I hope you uh, listening or watching us along are passionate about. Uh, I'm excited for today's guest, but before we get onto the topic at hand, let's dive into Around the Association. Now, on a lot of episodes where we're focusing on the NBA, this is the part of the show where I would recap some big wins, some big losses, notable trades. We're in trade season. But uh, today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Obviously, we're talking about UK hoops, but I'm not actually going to talk about basketball in this section, per se. What I'd like to talk about is a storyline that's been going on this week um, that I feel like is a topic uh, that is easy to get... um, it's very tabloid newspapery, um, but I think it's an important subject that needs discussing. So I'm going to dive straight in. In a very short period of time, two professional football players in this country have been arrested, one for an alleged sexual assault and the other for animal abuse, respectively. It's important to remember that professional athletes are sometimes not the best role models for the rest of society. Given their elevated visibility, however, particularly for the young and impressionable people that will make up our next generation, it feels particularly troubling when those with global visibility behave in these kinds of deplorable ways. A famous Gandhi misquote that is still a wonderful collection of words, in my opinion, and that I strongly believe in, is the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way in which its weakest members are treated. I hold that the more hope, the more helpless, the more entitled it is to the protection of our cruelty. Indeed, another sad reminder that however talented someone is at a sport or anything else, they may well still be an incredibly flawed human being. As a sporting community, we must all remember that the work that goes into developing young athletes must be mirrored in developing them as young people too. So, so too should we celebrate those who are genuine role models. And let's get more positive from now on. I believe that today's guest is a true role model for those with an interest in growing British basketball. I've actually bigged up today's guest to a lot of people in terms of the weight and value I place on his opinion in UK hoops. So let me read some of his credentials to explain why. Our guest today was the first English coach on the FIBA Europe coaching certificate. He coached the England under 16s and under 18s as an assistant with Tim Lewis. He went to the World Student Games with the legendary coach Dave Titmus at Izmir in Turkey. He then moved on to the GB under 20s for four years as assistant, three years as the lead assistant, one year as the head coach. This was one of the only, uh, sorry, the only GB team to ever win a European tournament. Uh, The talent manager for the South of England for 10 years. So no doubt our guest today has coached, assessed and been up close with some of the top basketball talent to ever come out of the UK. I am, of course, talking about Nick Whitfield. Yes, he's also my former coach. It's MJ himself, Matt Johnson. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks, Nick. I'm still chuckling. Thank you. And great to see you again. And I hope you worked on that jump shot. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, 
So one thing we always do when we have a guest who hasn't been on the show before mm -hmm. or hasn't been on in a long time or whatever, I ask you uh, in a very Scylla Black fashion, what is your name and where do you come from? Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I don't know if you can see it, but my name is Matt Johnson and my family's from Wales. I'm actually born in England and I'm living in Reading. And how this is a question I always find fascinating in asking anyone in the UK, because if we're passionate about growing the sport, mm. it's important to understand how people who are already into the sport got interested in the sport. So tell us how when were you first exposed to basketball? What do you remember mm. about that? Yeah, it's a great question because I'm always amazed by the different answers that come across. But inevitably, school seems to be a very uh, popular starting place. And that's no different to me. I was at a school just up the road, Maiden Early, and my sister two years above me was playing and I just used to go and watch. And then I think I was like 13 and I happened to have a PE teacher, Mr. Baker, who'd played for the county in his younger days. So as a part of him to keep fit. This is the good old days when teachers used to play sport with his students and he had a basketball team. And it was I think it was even that like every year group could come along and just went along. And I really, really enjoyed it. And that kind of took me into the should I do this or not? I played rugby was my first sport and then football and athletics and everything. And basketball was just a, a, a real joy and then kind of moved through the school ranks and then went to a basketball camp at Loddon Valley Leisure Centre, ironically enough and with the great Mark Dunning and Charles Bannerman and some coaches from yesteryear, Steve Tucker, and I won a few awards, which I think were basically, now I know them as the, the kid that will work hard, dive on the floor, but isn't very talented award, you know? I got I got loads of those, and that was it, really. I went on to Thames Valley Tigers, and that's kind of, that was the beginning. And so the Rockets were formed in 1997. Talk about, mm. there's a lot of people into basketball in this country yeah. not everyone thinks i know what i'm going to do i'm going to start a basketball club yeah what why did that happen what was the thinking there did you know at that point was the plan all along to get to mbl one maybe bbl what what happened there um yeah and it's tough to believe it, but that actually was the plan 25 years ago and we've i think if you ask my dad he's still got the original paper that we just sat and wrote, and wrote it on but um yeah it, it's 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 a strange one, really. It's a lot. It's a it's a long journey, but it doesn't feel it because I'd played at sort of Division One level. I was an average Division One player. I'd gone to Brunel University, which was then Borough Road, and that was because all my mates went there for basketball. And then I'd played at a few clubs in like Slough, and um, that was at the bottom of Division One. And we we played against all the the main teams of the of the era, the Solents and all that brigade when they were on their sort of the beginning of their new journey. Um, and, you know, we would get beaten by Richmond with Alton Bird in it and Crystal Palace that was coming back again. And and then I went down to Bournemouth and I was, to be honest, I was really aghast at the fact that no teams that we went to were clubs, really. And none of them had youth programmes that had come through. And I'd come through a youth programme. But when we started looking at it, none at Thames Valley Tigers at the time, there was very, very few kids that went through the youth programme actually made it to the BBL it was such a huge jump so fast forward like I don't know five ten years and I'm sitting in Bournemouth with my dad and saying look should we do this he was a successful businessman and he kind of um, stopped all that to be a church preacher and then he was then working in a, in all different sorts of things and he knew business and I'd kind of was 
happy to learn about the basketball side to it. But let's do it. But I think this is the thing that changed Nick, well, how we, I met you as well, really, was that kids and the youth was always to be at the forefront of what we were doing. It was never originally about the men's or women's teams, even though it was me and a bunch of mates from London from uni. It was never about that, really. It was how big we could grow it because I was really aware I could have been a lot better if I'd started earlier and been coached better and had more time because I was quite a keen, a keen athlete. So I think it was to do with the things that we hadn't had that I started to realise in my mid-20s, I guess, um, that I thought we really could do. And I didn't think, I honestly thought it would be a lot easier than it, than it actually transpired to be, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I would make it a bit easier. I'd, I'd probably have less grey hairs. But So that's kind of how it all went. And it was from experiences I'd seen around, you know, I've been going around Division One and seeing some great players of the day in the T-side teams of EJ Harrison and some of those guys again but they never had junior teams and they, did, they weren't clubs so then I went took myself off to see what Ajax looked like and, and Manchester at the time with, with Joe Forber I was going and asking him how he was doing his thing at Trafford youth at the time and it was it really captured me and then I met Sergio and talked about the Spanish way that they they uh, grow players and then I looked at football and all the other ways and started traveling around the world and I was fortunate enough to do some stuff with the national team so you're able to kind of see your context very quickly that actually what we do is tiny over here and in one city in Spain they have more members of playing basketball than we do in our whole country so I think that kept me grounded and also gave me loads and loads of ideas I was spent a lot a, a number of weeks in Lithuania and see finding people there and their view of it was very different and Serbia and Turkey and wherever we went, there was always loads and loads to learn. And I just kept piling it in and going, well, why can't we do this in Reading? And there's no reason why you can't. It's a bit more tricky, but, and the weather's not as good, but, um, but that's kind of like gives you a whistle stop tour of why we did it rather than the, the how, I guess. And how you mentioned, um, there was a kind of overlap there where between your playing career and the Rockets starting up, mm. what was that early period like in terms of not only uh, trying to kind of set up all the youth teams and everything, but also you're playing, you're kind of trying to oversee how the club is being built and coached and run. How Were there any conflicts of interest there between... The, Matt the player versus Matt the guy trying to build a basketball club uh, yeah I mean there must have been I mean but you're just blind to your own faults aren't you most of the time so when I look back now and, and one of the reasons we had some really good guys that were working with our team early on and um, I think I knew quite early on in my career that we could we started in division four and that was, and I was, I'd previously played in Division One. I wasn't very good, but I played in Division One, so I knew we could get to that. And then Coach Titmus and Coach Devereaux did some stuff with us, and then Coach Titmus really came in and turned us on to performance. So I was then able to go as a as a captain and as a player. I was experienced as some really really good coaching, and that probably was the thing that really lit my touch paper because I, I would say I was always quite confident, and I was always happy to take the lead and be in front of a group of people socially and everything else and then it was kind of natural that I was going to go into the sort of leadership I guess but I never knew anything about building a club I just didn't know and then I was probably focused on playing until I guess right at the end of my career when coach T went out to do some GB stuff or GB wheelchair as well so I had to step in as um, as a sort of assistant coach and then it, it kind of 
it was at that point when I realised when my playing career was over, well, I'm going to throw everything and get, we just didn't have enough people because there was, you know, me and Ben Fisher and one or two others and Coach T, we just knew we needed to get more people. But that was the beginning of the ideas, I think, where we would sit down and go, you know what, this, we might have a couple of teams now, but this could be really big, you know, it's a tiny little community programme, a couple of teams and a men's team. I felt like it was everything. And then I was going off to Spain and seeing clubs with like 40, 50 teams running and going, guys, <laughs> we haven't even started. So I guess that frames it for you. And for anyone who doesn't already know much about the Rockets, talk about the degree to which the club has kind of truly been and continues to be a, a family passion project. Because it's pretty much everyone in your family <laughs> is involved in some way, right? Yeah, otherwise then I'll have in the family. We made a rule very early on. Uh, I think it's the only way forward, isn't it? Um, dictatorship. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're a close family anyway. And it was strange enough. I've, uh, I've worked with my dad now every day for 25 years. But we've always, uh, I know most people are close to their dads, but you know, I've always been quite close to them through. He would come and watch you play sport. And he was always the, the dad that was there. And even when I was playing at other clubs, he'd help out in some way, shape or form, lend a, lend advice, drive the buses, all that sort of stuff. And then it just sort of made sense. And um, my mum is probably the rock behind everything that just makes sure that our morally, that we're in the right place, that we're doing things with the right intention. We never, we don't always get it right, but we're always kind of pulled up onto that. Um, and then my sister has always been in sort of worked at Helis and John Lewis partnerships and stuff like that. And she was very good in some areas and administration. So that made sense. And then my now wife, Steph, was a player and a coach. And then she kind of took off when it came to the community side of things. And then like Ben Fisher, who, who most people would know as well as, as like one of my, that's like my younger brother, really. And he's been around since the days of Waterboy and now he's kind of overseeing huge swathes of the club. So yes, it's a very family orientated club and I think it was one of the things we wrote down you'd want a, I think you want a club when I went to France I went to Cherbourg lots of times it felt like you're going back to visit family friends and I thought how wonderful is the way that a lot of Europeans approach sport it's not that the, very quickly after the result of the game did we talk about the game you know you're talking about yourself so um, uh, we haven't got done that yet but we're getting there and I think yeah the the family often remind me of what they could have been doing or how much they could have been on an island somewhere retired, but not in this game, mate, not in this game. <laughs> you alluded to it a little bit there, um, but maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the Rockets Foundation and yeah. the kind of impact that has on the local community. Well, th this is, again, like you learn stuff that you need to learn when you need to learn it. And I had absolutely no idea about charities, foundations and all these sorts of things. And probably to about 10 years ago. And we moved the club from playing in quite leafy part of Reading to move down to the south of Reading into Whitley, which we felt was the right way in our hearts because there was a lot more kids there that probably fitted the scope of basketball and basketball needed them and they needed it. Um, but we were aware that when we did that, you're going to end up having to get a lot of players, not a lot of payers. And, and money is always in the way. It's never a barrier. It's just in the way. And, I just couldn't scratch my head about how you can't get it any cheaper for a kid to play other than the cost of the court and the cost of games and referees. And whenever you divided it all up, it was always, you know, five, six hundred pounds a year. So 
I went to the school and we asked them for help and they were amazing at, at, at John Mulacy Academy and I later worked for them and still am but that was a kind of uh, a real moment for me where friends were saying and we took some real professional advice about starting a foundation mm -hmm. to really concentrate them on raising money for kids that are unable to play or can't afford some things might be kit might be um, could be anything in it and, and it's been it's a real it's become a really important part of our club more so every year and the more we talk about it the more money we need to raise because the bigger we get and and it just is it's just released us into so many ways and i think of the many 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 kids that we help and the many many more that we didn't beforehand because we couldn't and it just breaks my heart so the foundation is it's, it'll be bigger every year. It grows every year, um, and I'm intensely proud of it, and we will honour it as best as we can because it is a, it's probably a bigger part of the, of the Rockets' fabric than people would see and would know, and it's a genuinely working foundation. It is not a, it's not sitting there. There's trustees that are meeting. There's kids that every single day are benefiting from, from the work that's done and, and the money raised as well, so... Yeah, good one. That's a that's a really good question. I didn't even think about that one, but yeah, I, I'm intensely proud of all the work that those people do, and the trustees are just incredible. And and honestly, they wouldn't even want me to name them because it's really not about them. It literally is, you know. And a lot of them have put money in and gone on and been successful in the club, and they just want to pay back anonymously. And I just, I, I, it warms my heart all the time when we're able to give, you know, some money towards kids that you know genuinely need it. What was shifting gears a little bit, but one thing I'm curious about was what was the lockdown experience like for the Rockets as an organization? Mm. It's interesting how little, even um, as an avid basketball fan like I am, how little I've heard about these kinds of stories around the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, someone asked me that today, actually. I was just chatting to an, a, a lad who used to play for us, who's now at Copleston. He said, oh, how was, how was lockdown? Well, one of the things we we're very fortunate about was because we had the sort of permits to play as performance athletes. So the academy, uh, all three teams, two boys teams and girls teams could all train and the women's team and the men's team could continue to train because they're division one. But it actually, weirdly enough, gave us time um, and we've never had time. Like you just never have the time. So me and Ben and the family and, uh, and, and all the people that are involved around the club and we're able to sit down and kind of, without the we're running like 20 teams a week and with that comes a volume of work that i do very little of if i'm really honest but the amount of work that it needs means you don't get other people to just sit and strategize and i was i was able to speak to people in other countries i was able to reach out to people over here and that's really how the beginning of kind of the bbl thing kind of started to tickle forward it was just time to speak to friends that have gone from uni and ask their advice and um, we did a huge amount of online work as well. The coaches and, and Ben really drove it and my, and my wife, Steph, was doing online classes all the time. And the kids really responded to that. We were surprised at how many stayed on. But the quality of the online coaching was really, really good. So every squad had two sessions a week, no matter what. And one of those was might have been a quiz. One of those was a physical one. One of those was out with a basketball. I mean, there was just some brilliant work being done um and then the rest of it was like weirdly we were driving on roads with no one on and going to training and then going home again so yeah it was it was obviously very difficult for for you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and i consider ourselves very fortunate to be honest nick 
Um, before we move on from like the formation of the Rockets and um, the type of club you are, what do you think um, are the biggest differences you'd point out between mm. the kind of the club the Rockets are today versus those early years? Um, I was speaking to a couple of good friends, Josh Thorne and Mark Howard, and we we did a little Instagram chat through lockdown as well. And I kept banging the V word at them and, and volume is like the biggest, it's the biggest friend and the biggest enemy of any sport as well. If you don't have volume, you can't do anything. So, and you don't create a, a natural tension of performance for either coaches or players. So I would say that we've worked really hard more recently. The first years was about getting basketball out. And well, we're quite surprised how many people liked it. Oh, we need teams. And it was quite reactionary. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people find themselves. You're like, oh, I've just got this session. And there's 15 kids and they want to play. So, OK, let's have a team. I think now we're, we're more strategical. Um, our volume is significantly higher and intentionally higher as well. We're at a point where we know a thousand kids a week. We now know what staff we need to go to 2,000 and 3,000 and what that actually looks like and the systems that are in place and the hub program that runs and how much they cost and what the profit margins have to be to make sure it's a business and not just, you know, flash in the pan. So I would say that from the early years of we're doing it because basketball made us all smile or we loved it to actually if we're going to have a project that gets a thousand kids smiling a week, we've got to be really organized. Um, and that certainly wasn't my strongest skill um, in those years and I probably lacked the leadership to be able to set that out but now I think in nearly every aspect of the club I think we have a vision and there is a strategy that goes with it and it won't always be right it won't always be clear but we'll be able to talk quite openly about it and and I think that is the difference. I think that's probably the difference in business, really, from fledgling businesses to these ones. And and it's run as a business, but in a way that part of the business is joy um, and part of the currency is fun as well. But I would say definitely that um, the aspect of which we see it now is much, much better. And we're able to do a better job for more people. And you already talked about the JMA Rockets Academy a little bit. Um, mm. It's kind of grown into being known as one of the best setups for student athletes in the UK. Talk mm. me through all the work that has gone into that in terms of like from the years, the likes of me and Mark were in the team to like yeah. the kind of really like elite level it is now. Mm. Talk about, I mean, that's an incredible amount. It's an incredible achievement, but also an incredible amount of work that goes into that. Yeah, I, I think I like to sort of break it up. And one of the, one of the Spanish coaches we worked with, Manuel, used to talk about projects a lot. And I think that was the, the, the academy project. When you go on that as a project, it's it takes you to places you didn't really know you were going to go. And when when I first decided that we knew we wanted to get into this, we were at Reading College. Um, and Reading College had a sports hall. And it was just the right thing to do. And it was really me kind of experimenting with other ideas I'd seen across you know, Europe and the world and going, okay, well, can we do kind of a high school type club type thing and get kids on the floor more? And there'd been, there'd been academies before. Um, I think uh, Lynch, a guy called Lynch did one in Newcastle. With Craig Lynch. Yeah. Craig Lynch did. Um, with uh, Bob Martin as well. Yeah. So that, there yeah. had been academies before. People don't know that, but there was quite a few. And then Moulton College was a huge one with Mark Dunning and John Collins. 
so we, we knew there was things around there so I'd kind of stepped out on this journey with Reading College and a friend of mine who's now a academy manager or assistant academy manager at the football club he helped me with the business side and how to set it up and coaches and then the amount of students you need to make it viable and how to present to education boards and how to make it you know work properly and discipline systems and all the other stuff that kind of you don't really think about until it's time to do something and then Henley College approached us as well and that was just before the time of like Luke Nelson's days and we had JP coaching there and we did a really really good job Henley was a really big college and actually we were they were going to build a double court sports hall and that was going to be the Rockets was going to Henley and that's South Oxfordshire it's 25 minutes away and we're still at Henley to this day but it takes like a second almost ABL tier for us for us and then I got approached to go to JMA. They were building this school. The school had failed for many times before. In fact, Ricky Gervais went there. So when he speaks of his schooling days, not very pleasantly, it's actually at the, the original school. And they knocked it down and they put sport at the forefront of the academy, bought in Reading Football Club, bought in the basketball club. And the school was in a real troublesome place. It was losing. They had 17 kids in a sixth form was a losing have no kids on the roll like you know 200 kids 300 kids in the school and so but it's in a really important part of reading it's in a really densely populated part of reading and no one had cracked it but then sir john madacy came put his name towards it tony blair opened it and it was like blowing wind into the sails because they built a, a basketball place that you know now and a gymnasium and a sports hall across the road and there was facilities that people were proud of and I went in and worked with the first group of kids and I, I, the headmistress, who was a real sort of powerful woman, I said, right, how long before we're the best in Berkshire? And I said, oh, you know, one to three years, like, it won't take me long. And then I came back and said to her, I think it's going to be five to seven years. It was a long, long journey. And I wasn't even sure if I was going to stay. And then the PE department was very, very good, caught, just caught fire, really. And then we said we would do that. So I ran the sort of younger ones and the older ones went to, Henley College because it was a better school and we've worked for 10 years to make JMA into what it is now and had its first kids going to you know, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, you know, and become a very academic school and it's just going over like 250 kids in the sixth form and 50 of them are doing basketball at a really high level. So that has been a really important part of us and we've been through difficult times for the school because it nearly closed, you know, about eight, nine years ago and when they decided this is what they're going to do, they've they brought in an absolutely brilliant headmistress called Miss Baker, who's done some similar work in Slough. And the rest is history because we've now opened a youth academy as well. And sport is richly running through the veins of the school. And now we're bringing in younger kids. So my son's year eight. He's just come. The off, we just had a recently a good Ofsted inspection and really positive signs like that, which are always the number one thing that parents want to ask. And yeah, I think we've the coaches that we've got, they're really good. Strength and conditioning, physio, psychology, massage. I mean, you name it, is light years ahead of what we were doing at Thames Valley University, Reading College, all those years ago when Danny Cart was coming in at seven o'clock in the morning and we'd finished training at half past 10 at night because we couldn't get the court. So, yeah, it's um, it's a really big part of our, of our programme. Uh, and I think we'll actually just get bigger as well. Working with... Um young players as you have for so many years now what do you think have been the biggest learnings you've had because these are um student athletes or national league players or who basketball will have um incredible meaning for them um much more so i think than uh non-pro adult players should we say yeah um 
what yeah what have you learned working with players in those age groups mm. do you know what i used to have a favorite age group and a favorite gender and i honestly don't know i've worked across nearly every age group and every gender and they're all uh they're incredible in their own way and i mean i've done a little bit of mini ballers when my wife was really short and needed a coach to come in and cover and i thought it's incredibly hard to do that um, and then I've done fortunate enough to do like the senior men's team for a period of time and some some international stuff with GB. And the, the lessons don't really change because I think coaching is changing and it, I think it's our duty to change it to enhance who we work with. Um, we don't use the same language now that we would use in 18th century and we shouldn't use the same language in sport that we that we use even 10 years ago because the language and not just the words, the intonation and the word and what comes behind it changes. So I think what I would say is things change quick and coaches have to be able to change quicker um, and be and be prepared to, to lead and to be honest um, in how they feel and how they see things. And I would say if I pin my flag to the mast, I would say a couple of things for me are clarity. I often think that coaches and players have a lack of clarity between them about what's required and what's been seen and that causes frustration and that happens from I was uh, our assistant coach Dan Lloyd was away this weekend and so I was sat in with the division one men's team and it's the same job of making sure the players understand what's required and do, and do they know why it's required of them that doesn't change from under 12s to I think NBA I, I genuinely don't think it does I think honesty is probably your best weapon as a coach and your and your favorite friend because kids see through you so quickly and if you're not honest and you're trying to create a friendship or do something that isn't just speaking from the heart they'll see it and that used to be in language that was considered loud and aggressive i think now the skill of the coach is to do that in a way that is uplifting and empowering rather than destructive and coaching with a stick i don't mean that physically but i you know metaphorically speaking yeah. so clarity and honesty i mean these are not the x's and o's stuff but we, you know, we can get into that a little bit but the clarity and honesty and one of the things i just i wrote down here when we certain players teach you certain things and luke nelson was in his first year was a pretty average player everyone knows him from the gb team now he wasn't average he was really good but for where he wanted to go and he was under 16 and he'd won the under 18 national championship for worthing and he came to Henley and we had a terrific coach, Samit Nurizade, who's now head of basketball in Azerbaijan. I was a real teacher. And he he taught Luke how to play hard and how to train hard. And we sat in a meeting with Luke and I remember it like it was yesterday because I, I use this example for players to say, well, well, out of 10, how hard are you training? You know, and 10 being you've just given everything you can give and zero being you might as well not be here. And Luke had said he, he was operating every day and he's doing like one or two sessions a day at a six and then we just said to him well you're going to be a six out of ten that's this is what happens you get that's what you get what you you, you work for and he kind of looked and he went i don't want to be a six out of ten i want to be in that top echelon and and that next training session he was in there with liam carpenter and i i he just flipped he just flipped the switch and realized that in every moment you have he's just given it his best effort and it's so easy to say, it's so difficult to do until you see kids that do it and you then encourage them to do it. So then he has every opportunity to be a whatever a nine out of 10 may be. But at that moment, he was training. And we, we were saying to him, look, in that sports or there, there's kids that are really 
relatively average that are working harder than you. And that really shouldn't be a thing for you. And I think being able to have those discussions and not waiting too long because youth development goes quickly. So you need to be really honest and really clear very quickly. I think being able to have those things and he knew it was coming from our hearts. He knew it was like all about wanting him to be the best. And then six months later, you've got Steph Curry's coach, Bob McKillop sat in a hallway at uh, down in <laughs> Henley College because he didn't have any chairs in there, sat on the floor recruiting him. And, uh, and, I, and, and he deserved everything he had, but it's not, it, it honestly isn't about him. It's just about how, how he was able to train um, and that's the lesson I think for every kid and it's really really difficult to do um, and it's really really easy to stop as well <laughs> so I would say those are the things really that I, I I would bring out of the time I've spent with young kids I've got there's loads of amazing memories I've just coached my son for a year as well that's that's a test for any parent and child but that's a, that's another story but that's a really fascinating, fascinating um, example of a player um, everyone will know in Luke Nelson. Are there? You mentioned um, sort of conscious work ethic there being a determinant of kind of reaching the level he was capable of. Mm. Are there any other kind of? And I'm really interested in your perspective here because there might be. Um, young players listening or watching to this either live or after the fact and mm. are there any other kind of um with all the players you've seen come through the academy at reading uh, and have gone on to play at different levels are there any other um sort of common points between those that have really succeeded um i'll I tell you what i will do I'll, I'll chop you back on the word succeeded because i have changed my mind on it because some of I mean, you, I'm talking to one of them, like, you know, you're you're sat here successful in your own right, yet we don't, you won't be known outside of your Tuesday morning run for a, you know, successful basketball player. And I think that I put a lot more, um, uh, I'm much more weighted now to how the kids think and how they react to situations. And Coach Keane used to have a really lovely expression. And he, he said two things. He said that you need the players need to be ready to perform when they're in the fire. Um, if you're going to be a performance player, like you need to be able to perform when, and they would use the word pressure, but it's more when the heat's on, when the game is difficult or when the moments are difficult, they need to be good in that. So performing in, in the fire. And, and he said about that and to help them through that, your relationship needed to stand the test of truth. So I would say there's a couple of things that go with that is one, you need coaches that know um, it's it's a lot easier to trust someone on a journey if you know they've been there or they've at least seen the destination. Um, it's really hard not to. And I think kids will give you their trust if they when you speak in a language that, that, that empathizes with their feeling. I would say two things that come to me really quickly are bravery and the ability to be inquisitive constantly inquisitive about themselves and about the uh, the game itself because the game changes and the ones that have conversations with you that are very basketball centric and I don't understand that and why is that happening and um, and if I do that he goes there or she does that what's that I think that level of like sports inquisitiveness rather than just sports performing is um, is quite rare um, and when it's there coupled with talent, coupled with physical, coupled with mental and cognitive ability to learn. It's a really big one. 
and underpinning all that i would say is bravery um and to be brave i use that a lot with the girls the girls need to be really brave as well because they sometimes don't want to look silly if they miss a shot and stuff like that so different genders different things i'd say bravery is probably to go along with being inquisitive you've got to be really brave and and the other thing the last one which is tough is having the commitment to stay when you know the road is right but you know the road is tough and we have academy kids that um, might not play as much as they want but they are able to go and speak to the coach they're able to talk and be honest we have an open door policy but equally it's yeah you're right it's tough you're not playing much and you've just got to train better and keep going because you're doing well you know an understanding that you doing well doesn't mean that other people shouldn't do well because there's other 12 others that are also doing well with you and that's the target but it makes for attention and that's the tension that's in performance right so I would say that sort of stickability. Um, a lot of kids seem to be jumping clubs a lot more than maybe they used to do before, I would say, particularly in the London area. They jump from club to club to club. So you probably can't layer the learning as much and you can't, you're not overseeing where I could tell you that most of our under 16s now that Ben coaches, I've known most of them since they were 10, you know, and I'm, I, I will have known their faces, but I can tell you that they've learned things along the way. And the, there's a number of kids whose faces are in my mind now that haven't played much one year. The following year, they've got to work harder to play a bit more, and they're full of that hunger to do that. You can't do that if you jump in clubs. So there's a bit of stickability. There's a bit of inquisitiveness. There's a bit of bravery. And, you know, the physical side, weirdly, you can train yourself to do a lot of stuff. There's a lot of good players that play in EuroLeague and Division One. I was one of them, and I wasn't good, but I played Division One. I. I could basically make a right-hand layup, and quite famously with all my friends now, and a free throw, and that's just about all you got off me, and I'd defend. So, and I, I'm, so you can do it, and every kid now is more skilled than I ever was. It's just having that mental fortitude to stay with it and to really work when people are giving you advice and not shrug it off. So being coachable, I, I think it's being coachable, they call it, but I think that's more an internal thing than a, Yes, I listen to the coaches, being able to coach yourself to understand how I am in that scenario. So there's a few little things in there, Nick, I think. That's great. And um, this one is going to be a two-parter, so bear with me. Okay. So, what, circa an hour ago, as of time of recording, the team uh, announced that club legend Danny <laughs> Carter's coming out of retirement. So... My first question is, how important is he going to be for a Rockets team in the midst of a fairly difficult season? And the second part is, with all the players that have come through the academy over the years, is the hope that uh, more of them may come back and play for the senior men's team at some point? Um, yes, that's a short answer to that. Um, if it's the right place for them as well. And I'm not, you know, I don't mean that glibly. I mean, if there's something that's better for them we want what's best for them that we'll only have you know 12 guys in hopefully a bbl team 12 guys in a division one team 12 women in the top team 12 at the academy so you can't service everybody but and for some people it's not right they've, they've the club's done what it needs to do and they've, they've flown off and started new lives so if we circle back to danny i mean I, I remember the first day i saw him when he was and we didn't select him for some local <laughs> tournament because he wasn't very good until his dad walked in and ducked under the door frame. And I went, right, you're in. Um, and and him returning, for me, you said, how important is it? I don't know how important it will be on the court. He's older. Um, he's not as mobile, but he's so bright basketball-wise. 
he's huge now, like his arms and he's been lifting. He's a, he's a big, solid guy. He's experienced. He's an absolute winner. Um, he's not shy of telling people that we need to do better. And I think he comes in when the team is absolutely in the place where they'll accept him and he'll give us something that we currently don't have. He'll just give us that veteran size to go. I mean, Mishak, who's almost tearing the league apart a little bit, doing really, really well. He's going to work with him. And then we've got two younger bigs, KB and Ronnie, who are academy kids who, you know, Danny's brilliant with those guys as well. So we had, we've suffered some real tough injuries and lost the starting guard and our American Tyler Cartain has missed, I think, uh, don't quote me, but I think 10 or 12 games already through three different injuries. So him coming in, and we were a short roster anyway because of the we had four juniors on uh, academy players on there, and they're now getting a bit of court time as well. So And, and DC um, comes back with Lewis Champion, who used to play his, his early days were for our under-10s. Um, so, and I didn't realise until Lewis came back and now the Danny thing, how important it feels. Uh, I honestly didn't. Lewis was playing at Thames Valley and Bristol and Northumbria and all that sort of stuff. And then when he came back, it just feels like they're home. And that's a really weird kind of thing to say. And I didn't, re- didn't realise it was within me as, a, as an emotion. But yeah, so <laughs> it's interesting you picked up on it because uh, I work a lot with Josh Thorne. I work a lot with Mark Halewood, who came through the club and... One of the things is you don't have to teach them the culture. You don't have to teach them what it is that's really important about being honest or trying to do things the right way. And they'll also brilliantly tell you they feel comfortable enough to tell you, no, that's rubbish. And you just need that smattering of people that they 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 care enough about the way that your club is that they will say stuff to you that you know you can change. So it's I really yeah, I, I hope to see loads of kids coming back, Nick. That would be that would be wonderful. And um yeah, it's just starting to happen, I think. So the more, the merrier. Danny is one of my favourite examples of, you mentioned Luke Nelson earlier, but I remember he was three or four years maybe below um, or behind Mark and I's team at Reading. Mm. And I remember seeing him play and he had the size, but he wasn't anything special as a player. And I think I must have gone off to uni and then he, he'd gone off to Stony Brook after that. And then the next time I saw him play, I just couldn't quite believe it was the same player and how the degree to which he'd improved as a player in those interim, I guess, five or six years mm-hmm. between the times I'd seen him play. So, yeah, mm-hmm. another real testament to um, probably not the best player the first time I ever saw him into being a real pro. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think at 16, 15, he was that tall, gangly kid that ran around. But I think the, the other thing, actually, that I should have mentioned, the, an absolute, well, I was talking to some of the football coaches that I work with today, and competitive aggression and competitivity is you know, just you being a competitor and a warrior is probably number one. In GB, when um, I was working under the sort of uh, auspices of the, of the National mm-hmm. Federation, our whole job was to create um, skilled athletic warriors and the warriors part was really big and it was you're a competitive creature in a world of competition and sport where a warrior stands gives everything that they've got and then they shake hands afterwards and it was you know that's one of the three words that they used it was like competitive you know athletic skilled warrior and you know athletic as you're working on it skill working your skills and warriors how you are and i think danny the, the warrior part was never a problem to him. He was really, really driven and winning over everything. 
And as much as that's hard to manage and it looks a bit ugly at times, and I've had my fair share of run-ins with him and we could fill a whole podcast with those ones. But um, And I, I, I said to him, I think as I was growing as a coach, I said, if I, I apologised to him because I said, if I was a better coach, you wouldn't have to deal with your frustration. I would have helped you better. And that's part of my responsibility as a coach. And I think that's always been the thing that I love to see him now because he's still got that burn, but he's you know head of PE at a school. He's a dad, you know, he's got, he's got all the other things going on and life, life's context has changed for him. But yeah, he's, um, he certainly has got that. And, and I wonder whether it's a generational thing or there's a number of reasons. And I think there's a lot of sports psychologists out there that could really get into that about, are kids less competitive now? I would say the answer is yes. I don't think that's a good thing or a bad thing. I just think it's different. Um, and if why, what, what could be some of the reasons behind it? And I, I've got my thoughts on it, but I, I definitely think that that's probably a thing that's going to be happening. The com- competitiveness is probably just dialing down a bit at the moment. And shifting topics a little bit um Mm -hmm. just in terms of the timing of uh why we've got you on the show today in (laughs) particular yeah um obviously huge news for the rockets uh a bid to join the bbl next season how long has this been on the cards i think only about 25 years nick so it's still a new (laughs) idea for us uh uh, when i can tell you when i sat my dad we were sat up till five o'clock in the morning um, for the first week and my mum would come down make a cup of tea then go back up and we'd still be there and he'd to, he had to go off to work at like seven and I would just not be working and we wrote on there that we wanted to try and be at the pinnacle of basketball in the in Britain and whatever that looked like so I can genuinely say it's been an ambition but I can also say that the last two years so probably early Covid was when the first conversations I had with some very special people helped me frame the fact that it could actually happen. And I just didn't feel it could happen with the way that the family was taking the the lion's share of the financial responsibility. I just didn't feel that was the right way for us to go. And I thought it would be uh, irresponsible of us to do that. Um, So I would say, honestly, from the beginning, but the answer to the question is probably two years ago was when we, in earnest, started having real conversations. And how much work goes into, because some people will see the, the, the news story, they'll see, oh, Rockets have made a bid to join the BBL. But what they won't see is all the work that goes on <laughs> behind the scenes just to getting to that story that emerges. Uh, what, so tell us about some of the work that goes on there. I think, I, think, I think some people think you just ring them up and go, we'd like to come mm. in, yes or no. Um, it's a very... Uh, lengthy process so it's about 50 pages worth of documentation um, right through to your 10-year business plan um, right through to all your investors your business people your strategy for where you're going to play your games and there's some pretty hard targets that it's one of the things that's got a lot lot of social media about our venue and things like that Um, so we had to put in there our plan for that in year one and then what year one to three year four to six and then year seven onwards you have to have a community plan and one of the things that i'm forever grateful for is that we have a big youth program and a big community program so that means we we don't have to build anything like that it's already there and i spoke to gavin baker actually at surrey and he asked me if you're starting it all again what would i do and i said i would start even bigger with the community 
more and more and more just thousands upon thousands, five thousand kids playing every week you know and then you know that you've got the next 10 years covered so um the bbl bid has been uh, two years in the making but i <laughs> what is wonderful is when you work with brilliant people and we're fortunate to have nick humby and matt delaney and smithy and um, andy p and my dad Joe Edwards and these guys that are just brilliant in their field, they make an awful lot of work look like not a lot. They're able to do a lot of work because of their the way that they are in their own fields. This is they're used to doing it. Whereas me, I'm much more strategical and looking over longer periods of time and you know looking at the player development and coach development and things like that. That's kind of more me. But it's it's an it's an absolute mountain of work. But none of that work feels like it's too much when it feels like it's right either. So there's, you know, there's there's a there's a probably two edges to it. One is this is really exciting, and then this is okay. Well, if this is right, we need to make sure that everything underneath it is right first. So, yeah, you'd be very right in saying there's a lot of work that goes into it. How exciting a time is it for the BBL currently with the recent investment that's going into the league? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, we didn't really know that it was coming in two years ago. We just we knew it was ambition. Then then rumors started flying around, and it's it's only natural because I think sports uh, TV is not really necessarily the the problem anymore. Like you can get your games out there every seen through YouTube and BBL Player and everything now. So so the issue of the game being like behind locked doors has kind of been creaking open for maybe five years. And we certainly have worked hard on our streaming, and I've. Um, you know, the guys that we use, if Ralston and his team and Mark have been championing this for a while now, once you see that the sport gets to people, it brings people in, it has an attraction to it, it has a, a stickability to it as well, in that people generally come, they generally come back. It's kind of cool when you meet the athletes and, and everything else. And it's, you know, there's a lot to it. So the, the, it's not a sport that's difficult to enjoy watching. And difficult to go away from going, I've actually had a really enjoyable time, so I'm likely to pay money. So all the marketing and media stuff fits hand in hand with it. So it's, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of work to it, but it's it's a really exciting time. I think Bet777, that these bigger companies don't come on board unless they can see a future. And inevitably, when you look around the world, there's very few of them that put money in an investment in and then don't recover that money because... Uh, they will say there's a bit of a risk to it, but I don't think people of that caliber take huge risks. I think they take calculated risks, knowing knowing the type of business people that we're working with. So it's really exciting. And I, I, I genuinely don't know how big it's going to go, but I hope we're a small piece of that that can to, that can package the sport better for future players, coaches and media people, physios, you know, strength and conditioning coaches, you know, people like yourselves that, that can uh, have a lot more interesting things to talk about when we provide you with better stories as well. Yeah, a shout out to a friend of Double Clutch, Hugh Hopkins, who's done a really interesting yeah. interview actually with 777 about the opportunity they see in the BBL um, and everything that lies there. So mm. if you haven't read that, anyone yeah. listening, do go and check that out. Um, I'm going to move on to our listener questions because a lot of them, as you can imagine, surfaced around this topic. Um, so this one was from, I just mentioned him, from Hugh Hopkins, uh, but also Matt Hardy, aka UK Nets fans, uh, who both asked the same question. Um, if both Reading and Birmingham <laughs> were successful in their bids to join the BBL, yeah. 
how would the likely name conflict be resolved? And before you answer, <laughs> I'm going to give you my suggestion. Go for it. And that, and that is you and Hakeem Olajuwon playing one-on-one. I don't think that's fair on him, Nick. Um, yeah, true. It, does true. it have to be basketball? <laughs> I'd go for tennis or something like that with him, make him run. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's... Well, I said a massive game of heads and tails, right? That was my... I said that back to Hugh on on Twitter. And I, I think of, of all the questions that I've been asked, that's in the top two. And the other ones, how many seats is there? A lot of value. <laughs> so, um, and is that going to happen? So let's take that one. And the answer is, I don't know. Because without sounding too twee about it, the most <laughs> important thing is there's two clubs trying to get into a professional league. Um, and whilst names are important for everybody and we would be, you know, really upset if we had to change as as they would be i think you need bigger people than us to kind of give us some direction on how that can work that 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 represents both clubs well um is respectful um and actually works for the league as well because you're in a you're in a league where you want everyone to get better so would i if i was in charge of a franchise allow two rockets teams i probably wouldn't i just think it's clumsy um but me now sitting here, I am not worried about that. Like it, it will be sorted out one way or another. You know, yes, I I hope that we are able to be rockets for for a long time. You know, that, that's really important to me, um, and I'm sure that that you know Rob and the guys in Birmingham are. So in fact, we're meeting up next week, I think, just to just to share some thoughts and ideas. So I don't know. I I don't even. We haven't even spoke to anyone about it. It's literally not been a thing until social media took over. So. It's been a hey, I'll keep you posted though on on what they say about it, but definitely one on one with Hakeem. I'm not sure. I think it should be Crown Green Bowls if it's one on one because I'm a member down at the, the club down here. Okay, and uh, this one was from Mike Miller, um, and he was curious what stopped Reading's ascension to the BBL previously. Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, honestly, people. Like uh, I sort of alluded to it earlier, I think when you take steps like this, the foundations that you lean upon have got to be really robust. And while the foundations have been incredibly robust as a family to get to the point where you're running what is really a extended semi-professional team, and that takes a pound of flesh out of all of you to make that work. Um, and we're, we're fortunate that the people of Reading have supported it for so many years. Um, but I think it was publicised the, the the quality and the calibre of the people that we've managed to get round the same table. And I can honestly say to you that I am incredibly confident that those people will guide us and keep us financially within our means. Um, they'll keep us morally to where we want it to be. And if there's a point where there is investment that comes in from externally, the family and the the way that the, what the club means it's raison d'etre will be protected because that is what the Rockets are. It's not one team and it sounds glib, but 12 players joining a BBL or a WBBL, we've got a thousand kids playing a week. So it's 12 more people playing. They're not more important than the under eight or under 10 girls that have just started. They're just different. So it, it would never be yeah let's bid it all to make that work it, it won't ever be that way and we won't ever do something that we know can't be successful in the future 
So I think that's been, it's taken us all this time to be able to say, yeah, you know, we've had times when we were at the higher end of division one um, and we were, you know, quite famously won everything a few years back as well. We won quite a lot of trophies. And even then, it didn't feel like the infrastructure was still right. It felt like it was right for what it was at that time. But it is a, it's a great question if it was Mike that said it. And it's a question that I've asked and we have to ask ourselves. And um, you know, now you just go through the list of the people that are on there. They've got experiences with Premier League football clubs, with World Cups, with Olympic Games, with... Man United with you, you name it, global business people, outdoor gym companies. It's this this business will be small for them um, in terms of their approach, but for us it would just feel huge. So that's really the reason why. It's just about the, the group of people that we've got together and trust. And it's important for my dad, my family, and me to spend time to get to know them. And you know, they have been nothing but wonderful, to be honest. Um, we also got a, a number of questions about uh, UK basketball mm-hmm. more generally. Um, this one was from uh, Jamie, aka NBA Jig, who says, uh, does Matt believe that to create a successful and more widely renowned league, that teams should be focusing more on youth development, particularly in schools, so that even without, uh, if they don't become professional players, at least they have a larger following for the future? Is he talking specifically about the BBL, Nick? Do you think about the, making the league work? Is that is that the? Angle? I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I I refer you, sir, to my first V word of volume. Volume is the winner, and people interested in the sport isn't always people good at the sport, and that's a delineation that you need to make because most often the people that are not good at the sport have got the funds, the passion, the drive to make the sport work, and I think it's our duty to give everyone that touches our sport a positive experience of it. And that's as a, whether it's playing, coaching, down the park, three on three, one on one against Akeem one, whether it's shooting by yourself, whatever it is, it should be an experience that's enjoyable and one that they can connect with. And that's why I think the BBO needs more teams. So you can go locally. You shouldn't be driving more than an hour, you know, or, or anything like that to go and see a good game. And it should feel exciting. But the more people you have playing, the more important your sport is. And I, you know, I said it to us blue in the face to the, to the Federation, you needed to get the under eights and under nines and under tens. Um, and I was in Malaga and their under their junior club had 750 kids in it. The junior teams did and 450 were under 12. So there's a lesson in that for everyone. So all the families are going to the games, the kids are buying the kit, they're getting a ball, they're playing in their school the the feeling of the sport is enjoyable it's there's there's about a thousand different pots and you have to keep putting coins in all the pots if you want a sport to be successful media is one of them but it's not you know you can have a great load of media but the sport itself is not well managed so i would i would say volume volume for people wanting to coach so you create uh, an excess of that volume of referees and we joke about referees but if there was two thousand referees and only a hundred needed every weekend they'd be really really good They'd be really, really fit and they'd be knowing all the rules. But that's just the way it's same for players and the same for coaches. I I, I made a na- I've become a national team coach when I spoke to a lot of Spanish, Icelandic, Finnish friends. They couldn't get to the same level that we got to. They were much higher qualified than we had to be because the pool was so shallow for us. Whereas for them in Spain, I went and saw a, a girl that's been coaching for us for a bit. She was the assistant coach of a second 
team in that she was at in Valencia, but she was at the second club on the fourth team of under 14 girls. And she was the assistant coach. And she said if she worked hard for five years, she could be the head coach of the second team. And that's what she had to do. You know, and she's earning a couple of hundred euros a month. That's it. But she could see it as a, as a driver. So volume makes everything better. So I think the the, the question alluded to that. Um, and I think that if that's the way they're thinking, they're absolutely spot on. And yes, of course, it's a knock on effect on the league. But that has a knock on effect on the next league and the next league and the next league. And then more kids want to play and more people get qualified. So, yeah, you're going to hear that you're going to have the V from me, the V for volume in quite a lot of my answers, I think. Another question, which is an interesting one, was just um, what did you think about Michael Owen's tweet? And if you didn't see it, Matt, and for anyone listening, in case you didn't see it, um, I'm going to add to it, basically, in terms of what the question is. Um, so if you didn't see this already, um, Michael Owen was uh, obviously the famous uh, former England football player. Uh, he tweeted that he was basically trying to isolate who were the best sports people of all time. Um, a, the thing worth calling out was that he only mentioned men. Uh, that was worth calling out. But the <laughs> other thing was um, he only listed a very select number of sports. Uh, someone replied saying Michael Jordan, question mark. And his reply was top 10, maybe, in my opinion. Is there a big enough pool of players that play it? Seems to me that there's only a couple of nations that play <laughs> basketball seriously. Uh, weirdly enough, that same week he was photographed at a London Lions game. Um, so whether that completely escaped his memory or not, I'm not sure. But what, <laughs> so the question was just, what did you make of it? But I'm going to add to that. What do you think it, um, well, let me phrase this a different way. I'll make a statement and you, you, uh, kind of reply to my statement. Go for it. In my mind, it still captures uh, a lot of the work we have to do as a sport in this country, when some, when an, a high-profile former athlete like that can have such ignorance about our sport, that still re is reflective of me of the the work still to do in basketball. Mm, yeah, I, they're such they're really great conversations to get into, but sometimes getting them into with Michael Owen isn't the best way to do it, right? Um, and we forget, don't we, that sports people are frequently not the almanac of data and information, and they have a very um, uh, myopic view in the main. And being in England, he's got an even more myopic view of the sport because context is key. And for me, being a, a passionate person in basketball, I've very, very regularly when I go on a radio show, I go, oh, you know, Matt, it's the sport's fast and furious and it's end to end and all that. So I go, yeah, 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 that's right. It is. But it's actually one of the most tactical sports and most skilled sports in the world. And they'll say, but, you know, it's just a develop. It's a really developing sport, isn't it? I'm like, no, it isn't developing. We are developing. And I think that's what you're alluding to. His knowledge is developing, you know, and that's partly down to us because it's not in the in the frame. It's not there. If it was on at six o'clock every night on BBC One, then people would know more about it. But it isn't. Um, I think so often when you hear comments like that, I I used to get annoyed at them. Um, I just think there's so much trash on social media and it's so difficult to actually find your way through with what is real and what's an opinion I even care about. And I'm getting older, so I care less about 
what Michael Owen thinks about our sport when he's probably so ingratiated in his own one. He hasn't got time to look at the broader picture of sports, whereas I've spent a lot of time looking at many different sports and the history of netball from basketball and why football took off and why rugby and why these sports are played in other countries and why we run, why the Kenyans so good and lots of lots of interesting literature around that. I think that I think you just need to be a little bit more broad minded. And as for the sort of the Michael Jordan comment, I mean, whoever asked him that question, I just think it's bait, isn't it? Because whatever he says, you've got at least a hundred other answers. You know, because no one's mentioned the famous guy that's crown green bowls or world champion in this. Or, you know, I, I read the one you said about, uh, was it um, Margaret Court has got 23 tennis titles when someone said that, you know, Nadal is the best ever. And I, well, no, he's the best male, you know. So and I like that. And I think people should go back to Michael Owen with some data and some facts. And, he, and I'm, I'm sure he would turn around and go, you know what? Yeah, thanks for that. I wasn't aware of that, you know, and that's that's the bit that I think we're doing. I think awareness is key. Um, but you know, the more people play, the more we see it. It's it's in front of us, isn't it? If you you can't you couldn't read a paper or you can't open your phone to BBC Sport without seeing a footballer, you know, and whatever that football story is will ride more than the importance of a of a medal in the Winter Olympics or something. So, you know, media is key if you want to change people's perception. One thing I'm interested to get your opinion on is my own observation about um, UK basketball is it is people, it's essentially a Venn diagram for me of three groups. You have people who actively watch the NBA. You have people who actively watch British basketball and you have people who actively play basketball. And I fit into all of those groups but what I'm very conscious of is throughout my life as a basketball fan, those three groups do not overlap anywhere near as much as you think they would. Um, mm -hmm. And a, so my question is, A, do you agree with that in your experience? And B, how do we do a better job of making those groups overlap more because, again, we're getting back to the volume thing here, because if all of those uh, different groups, as they currently are, were one group, that critical mass would be that much higher. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I, I think everyone, in whatever sport you're in, if you're a footballer, you have to know Premier League. If you're a female footballer, you have to know WSL. If you're a rugby player, you have to know the whatever the Pinekin is at the time or whatever. Um, so I think the NBA, and one of the things that I'm staggered at in, Basketball in England, we don't need a media approach because you've got the NBA. They do it for the whole world. The, the, like the rest of the world should just say thank you because they're doing all your marketing and media for you. They're making basketball cool. All you've got to do is have a system where it's easy to play, and that's like your middle one, is it? The people that play. Um, I think there should be more. The more opportunities there are to play, and there's very few, and that's one of the things that I'd really love to see over the next ten years. I think there's got to be some better tech where you can just go, I want to play basketball, you know, put in my age, roughly my level, and it says, here's all the places you can go tonight, tomorrow, book in here, beep, you know, and I think if we can get to that point, so it makes it more available, um, rather than you have to be a member of a club and you have to play for a team and all that, or you have to have eight other mates because the court's going to cost us 100 quid, you know, all, all those sorts of things. I'd like to see basketball, I'm, I'm working a bit with Joe Edwards, we're looking at some, plans for the future for us as a club and these are the sort of things we're talking about how do you just make it easier for people to come and play the game 
you know, not training, just go and play the game, you know, which is what I think three on three is doing. So I think your point is a really good one. The NBA is there and always will be. And now just underneath that, you've got EuroLeague as well and Barcelona. Everyone knows Barcelona and Real Madrid will have a team, but there's an incredible amount there. Um, And the BBL, and I think the BBL is the poor relation because, and it shouldn't be, it should be closer to home and we should be able to attract people that want to come and watch games and share in that and have a beer and catch up like you would do at football and it become a topic of your conversation and fans. But where the BBL has, has found it difficult to keep the same franchises going so you can't kind of follow your team for a long time. They've just changed names. I mean, I guess maybe Sharks and Eagles would be the two that have been going the longest, I guess. But the, the franchises can be quite fragile, whereas you support Reading Football Club for 125 years, you know, and it's the, the, you know, the Royals and all that kind of stuff. And you can go back there and it's still there. So I think there's a bit about history, about longevity, that gives you a safety as well to to be passionate about your sport because people are aware of it. I was speaking to guys that were playing at Crystal Palace in the 80s and 90s. They speak about it so passionately, but no one knows that Crystal Palace were a, 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 you know, a European powerhouse team back in the 80s and 90s. The basketball aficionados know, but we don't celebrate it. It's not celebrated as a sport. So we don't we don't rewrite our own history well enough. We don't talk about it enough. So then for the next generation, I'm really proud of it because you're standing on the shoulders of legends before you. So there's lots of that that I think is answers a question of what should we do? Um, and I think the celebration of players in the right way, respectfully, and that will build that will build volume. So, yes, the ones, the NBA, the BBL, I, I think I have no problem if someone wants to just watch the NBA and not get involved in British basketball. doesn't bother me at all. It, it, it genuinely doesn't or vice versa. I'm really kind of open to people will do now in the way that media is, they will just select their diet of media, however they want to have it. So if there's a game being streamed in the BBL or a Rockets game and they're scrolling YouTube and they catch it, I'm not upset if they go for five minutes or they go and watch the game live. If they've participated in it, I think, great, we've, we've, we've allowed it to go to another set of eyes. So it's a, it's a really interesting question, but I don't think, there's an answer for it. I think the answer is in each one of them doing really, really well. When you have three kids, you want them all to be really, really good. You, you don't go, we just have, let's just make one of them good, you know, or between them, they're all pretty good. And I think that's how we should treat that. I think, you know, the NBA, the bigger the NBA gets, NBA Junior League, the more of that gives us more press, the more the more people are playing and the bigger the BBL. Um, but under that, we have to build this structure of volume. The BBL needs to depend, and I missed out the answer. That I think one of your questions was about should they be more focused on youth development? Um, and absolutely, a hundred percent, we should. We should a hundred percent be dialing into, and we should be held accountable as performance clubs to the way we're developing players. I think as we start to do that, our national teams will improve as well. And one uh, final question um, before I get to the last section, I'm conscious we're running over a little bit, is um, you mentioned history and it got my mind thinking about how much harm do you think has been done in the BBL of that there's so many historic clubs that are no longer with us. Obviously, we've got the Giants back in a slightly different form. Yeah. The, the Bears disappeared, the Towers, the Leopards, the Tigers um you could list off a whole load more lots of animals yeah (laughs) the whole zoo yeah Um, but 
those were locations that at one point or another were generating decent sized crowds to watch basketball games that suddenly weren't there anymore. What can we do to stop that beyond the obvious of uh, financial reasoning? Um, But the second part of this question, and this is, I think, the harder part, is I think personally one of the things um, both NBL and BBL clubs struggle with is fans identifying with players in the same way as the NBA or the Premier League or where you have the same players year after year after year. Um, What can we do to stop that or address that? I mean, it's a massive question, isn't it? Um, I think the first one about... Has there been damage done? I don't think there has been. Um, I'm disappointed that franchises change, but genuinely, I think that people's intentions when you go into high-level sport are really good. Um, I don't think anyone's gone in it really saying, I'm going to make millions out of this sport. They might turn a small profit, possibly, but more than likely, it's a personal enjoyment that they want to bring. so I think the intentions are always good. So I never criticise uh, franchises that have gone. I don't think they've failed. I just think the time has changed for them. And I think the Manchester Giants franchise now with Lloyd at the front of that and Jamie, um, I think is a really good example of that. It's the right time for them to come back. And it's the right time for Manchester to have another BBL team. And maybe it wasn't before. And maybe that, you know, there's there will have been decisions made and we'll only know one of them, but there's normally about a thousand decisions made when it comes to these different franchises. I think what you said, what could we do to avoid that? I think we can hammer home a community responsibility that what you, football clubs are generally sat in a community and then nursed in the bosom of a community. Basketball clubs generally tend to be where someone has got a sports hall and they want to play. And frequently the mistake can be made that they don't either have a franchise at the top and build underneath or build this huge pyramid and then build that from that. So I think we should, there's got to be models um, that are doing that. And if not, then they need the kind of Lions model, which is a long-term, financially highly investable franchise with a return that they're looking for over 10 years. And that again has its own model. And there's a space for every one of those. I'm Even though my preferred model is the club, the big community, loads of teams, and like the, sort of the Rockets model that we have, it doesn't mean we're any better or worse than a club that just has a men's team or a WBBL team. They're all different. But I think in all those different models, um, we've got a responsibility to be robust for the future and embedded in the community no matter what that is. Because if I start a BBL team, there's already loads of kids playing. I don't need to start another community program. I might need to add to it, but I don't need to go and do that. Vice versa, if I go into an area where there isn't much basketball, I might need to do that to create the... the the storm of interest Um, and I think you said about trying to get players to stay so that kind of fan stickability and you know I think you're absolutely right I was speaking to our captain Ben Dixon about this a year ago and we've been we've been guilty of that we've been players have been changing quite a lot um, for, for necessary reasons really but it wasn't something that we planned and I would say in the professional era multi year contracts is the cheap is the cheap and easy way to do it um, not cheap financially, but it's the quick win where you're signing players to that. And if then other teams want them, then there's a contractual buyout. I think I think we need to go that way and the same for the best youth as well. I think we need to start looking at how they're contracted because it becomes professional. 
um, and the amount of work that goes into these players should be rewarded. So there's there's a whole two sections of that youth performance contracts for the best kids in maybe best 20 kids in the country. And then you've got the multi-year contracts for your local guys or your import who's coming in. And I, I just spoke to one of ours today and said, you know, we'd, we'd love it if you were here next year. And it's brilliant to be able to say that, you know, and I genuinely mean it. So I think in amongst that, there's quite a lot. But I would say that the intentions of people in the sport you have to believe they've always been good. And, and I can tell you how it is incredibly difficult to work in the sport, whether it's good through governance or whatever. You can put, you can look at, oh, we don't support, we don't do this, there's no money there. You can give it a thousand reasons, but there is a way to be successful um, and you just got to find it. Okay. And this has all been incredibly interesting uh, and quite serious. So I want to take it a little bit lighthearted <laughs> as the final section. Uh, hit me with the soundbite, Kirk. Nothing but Nick's silly nonsense. <laughs> okay. From its deadly rivalry with the sport of badminton to having to strain your eyes at the 300 different sets of lines on the court... <laughs> British basketball at the grassroots level is full of character. My question to you is, what is the most interesting or weird game or game experience you've ever been involved in and why? And I'll start to give you some time to think about this. Go for it. Mine was uh, a game in East London, I'll never forget, where the sports hall seemed to be missing a front door. <laughs> we got to the court, there was a the door at the like side of the court was missing. Uh, I think this was December and it was freezing. Uh, one, neither of the hoops had nets, and one of them was like uh, I'd say fifteen or twenty degrees pointing down. And we played a national league game in that venue. So I think that's my favourite game of all time. I mean, if you, I've got hundreds of these, Nick. You're this is right at my. And if if Ben Fisher was here with me, we could do three days on this one. Um, but some of my personal favourites, I mean, badminton, you, you, everyone's had to wait for a badminton game to finish, haven't they? So that's a, just, I'm not going to go down that road because I quite enjoy badminton, but you're not allowed to say that. Um, I would say a couple of my favourites were going to play a Division One game in London and the other team, well, I think they might have been bottom of the league. We turned up like an hour and a half before tip and tracksuits and prepared and the, the venue had only just been booked and we went in and the caretaker was there and said the other team won't be here for ages yet they normally turn up half an hour before tip-off so we put out the bleachers we put out the table for the table officials we put out the benches as the away team we basically set up their whole court for them and then they arrived so that was one that was slightly weird but just felt right at the time and and we went we were used to playing north wales in flintshire flint had a team up there and one of their games got moved to an ice rink, but they said, it's fine. And when we went up there, that basically the ice had melted through, but it's on these bits of plastic. So we had to play and the ball just basically wouldn't bounce, but we had to play a game on an ice rink. And it was like, we smiled about it. We laughed about it because it was like, this is basketball in England. You know, it's it's idiosyncratic. And that was, I think that might've been a division one game. It was or might, division one, a high division two at the time. So there's, I mean, there's so many, and you're right, there's so many amazing people, amazing stories, and that's just part and parcel of it. The blue lines up at Sheffield, the, you know, the courts, the, the, the baskets, the 
referees, the coaches, the characters. I'll tell you one of my favourite memories. It's a slightly strange one. I was telling some of the kids the other day, we used to go and play at Brixton in the good old days. And Brixton used to be packed in Division One. And they had a live DJ that used to spin tunes, mixing and scratching on the side and DJing and commentating. Fat Freddy was the guy. And it was just, it meant, it was the epicenter for all of us. You went to Brixton and you played basketball and Fat Freddy was your DJ. So they don't do that anymore. Mark Hellwood has actually uh, joined the chat and has filled in. I forgot Mark would have actually played in the same game I mentioned, and he's filled in some extra uh, character <laughs> details, some of which I'd consciously left off <laughs> actually saying on the show. Um, but there you go. And like that, we come to the end of the show. Um, if you found it interesting um, listening to us talking about UK basketball, uh, if you live particularly in the Reading area or wider Berkshire area, do get yourself along to a Rockets game. Even check the YouTube channel uh, first if you're unsure about actually going in person. Um, Mark, who's in the chat, uh, and uh, Ralston and team do an incredible job with the live streams. It uh, doesn't cost anything. Check out a game, uh, see if you want to go along in person. Matt, where can people find you uh, and more about the Rockets online if they want to? Yeah, we've got an amazing website. We're pretty much readingrockets.co.uk and it's all on there. And then we're all on all the social media channels at Rockets Reading. Um, and yeah, just jump on board and feel free to you know, throw some questions at us. And you know, if there's any, any thoughts or any opinions or anything that they think is burning, I'm always, I'm always a, a keen chat person about basketball, as you well know, Nick. And we come to the end of the show. I'd like to thank Captain Kirk, as always, for running the tech side of things. Uh, any words from you, Kirk? Next. Absolutely. Um, and to everyone out there, I uh, hope you enjoyed the chat and good night. Red Rocket, Red Rocket.